Turn with me in your Bibles once more to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. First nine verses will be our focus today. Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9, and I will take two weeks uh, to take from this book, uh, Palm Sunday, next Sunday, and Easter Sunday, but today's message is heavy. It's really heavy. I know that uh, all of God's word is heavy, but it is particularly heavy for those of you who are leaders in the church, and uh, for myself included, because the Lord specifically rebukes leaders in the church. There's no you know, I thought of other ways to name the sermon. You could name it maybe the glory of priestly success and just talk about the two or three verses that uh, give uh, certain credit to the Levites for a epoch in their time where they were faithful. But that is just not what happened in this time in the life of the church in the Old Testament. Instead, we have uh, the priests and their unfaithfulness. And so this morning we'll look at that. But remember from whence we have come. This book has begun by challenging the people of God to remember the sure love of God, the sovereign, unconditional, uh, redemptive, elective love of God. So that's the bedrock. They had forgotten this, and so therefore uh, their ethics, their obedience was slipping. They were no longer rooted in the security that comes from knowing that God has accepted us and paid the price for our sins. When they started doubting this, the ethics followed. Uh, they started disobeying. And there are many sins that are covered in this book, but specifically we'll address uh, the issues of unbiblical marriages, unbiblical divorces, uh, the lack of giving that was going on, just the interaction they had between each other that was sinful. And we rem hopefully remember the f second part of chapter one where he addresses the priests who are accepting these offerings that were lame. So he's basically endorsing this false worship of the people. But that was also a warning to the people who were bringing the false uh, worship to the Lord in these lame offerings. But here, in these nine verses, specifically, the priests are singled out. So hear God's word as it comes forth from the prophet Malachi, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have Already curse them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let us pray. Father, these are heavy verses indeed. They speak to us as leaders of the church. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would take to heart what is said here. I pray, Lord, that you would change us as a result. Make us to be salt and light in this world so as to see this culture transform for Christ. We pray this 
in his name. Amen. You could say that the health of a church is directly related to how the means of grace are given forth to the church. That is the preaching of the word of God and the sacraments rightly administered. Uh, I know that sounds simple, but basically that is a good way, a good mechanism to tell whether or not that church is healthy. And you know, much of what goes on today in churches is not preaching of the word. It's more of a gathering and maybe a social pep talk or uh, some other kind of uh, make sure you feel good before you leave kind of talk. And you know, that is not what the preaching of the word is meant to be. The preaching of the word is applying God's truth to us today, regardless of whether it's popular. In fact, most of the time it's not. But we need the word of God because it doesn't change and our lives do. And as we uh, come in line with it, then blessing and God's image goes forth. People see, people hear, and they come to him as they see the preaching go forth, the church transformed, and then the church transformed the world. But what was happening in Malachi's day, very simply, is that their walk was lukewarm. They had grown disconnected from this fundamental reality that they had been chosen sovereignly by God to represent him. And because of this, they were starting to disobey and their lives were falling into sin. But it is interesting that particularly here, we have the leadership address, the priests. And I would suggest to you that the vitality and health of the church is directly related to the faithfulness. You might say it's linked to the faithfulness of its leaders. Now, I'm not saying it's exactly connected to. That is, it is possible for a congregation to be somewhat faithful and still have leaders who are uh, unfaithful at times, and that is, that is certainly a possibility. But basically, you don't see that often. And in the Bible, it is very clear that as the leadership goes, so does the church. And in this case, God speaks directly to the priests. He's going to address all the sins that are, are plaguing the people. But he starts with the priests. They're the ones that are supposed to guard truth. They're the ones that are supposed to tell the truth properly in those days, administer the whole sacrificial system, make sure that it was done right. Yet they had failed, as we see in our text. In an introductory way, let's look at verse 1 so we can see that this is specific for the priests. And now, O priests, this command is for you. What has come before uh, it was directed to the priests, but the pe- they were sort of acting as heads of the people. Now, specifically, in priests, this command is is for you, specific instructions for those priests in Malachi's day. We might ask you, before I begin a sermon like this, okay, that's great, wonderful, we could see this, but those are priests. You're not a priest, Tony. The elders are not priests. There are not priests today, are there? Correct. As it relates to Old Testament priests, the aspect of their administering the sacrificial system and as mediators of the people before God, specially called from the tribe of Levi, no, there's not those kind of priests. But what is specifically addressed by Malachi is their office of teaching, their office of the word going forth. Not talking about priests in the sense of their mediatorial role here that Malachi is speaking of, but rather their job of preaching and teaching the word and living it before the people. And even in the sacrificial system, rightly overseeing that which you might even say is sacramental. Overseeing that it is rightly administered. We know there aren't priests any longer. Hebrews 7 tells us, at least not in the sense of them being mediators. Uh, The former priests in, in Hebrews 7 verse 23, the former priests, the priests we're speaking of here, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They'd have a lot of priests uh, because they're going to die and they needed more priests. So they had a lot of them in the days of the Old Testament. Verse 24 of Hebrews 7, but he holds his priesthood permanently, that is Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession. He's the mediator now. Jesus is it. He does away with the need for a priest to be a mediator. No further need for such a person. In fact, Peter says that you are priests. You're a holy priesthood, according to Peter. And the reason is, is now you have direct access to God. You don't need a mediator. You don't need to bring your sacrifice to me for me then to sacrifice it. You don't watch me do a sacrifice up here on your behalf. It's been done for you, and now you boldly approach the throne. In fact, the smallest toddler here has the same access to Jesus as I do. Same access to the Father through Christ. That is how you are a priest in that sense. But what this passage is speaking of is different. It's talking about the role the priests had as shepherds of Israel. They are shepherding role, that is teaching and living the word of God before the people. That is what's being spoken of, and that makes this directly relevant to those who are called and appointed to be leaders and shepherds in God's church. Ephesians 4 says this, He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Very similar, now seen through Christ, but very similar to what the priests were to be doing in Israel's day. In fact, elders in the church, shepherds in the church, are to be able to teach. It says that in Timothy and Titus. They have to be able to teach because, brothers and sisters, that's where the power is. You know, there's nothing I can do. I'm just not this clever. And there are people that are this clever. They can come up and give talks, and you feel really, you know, revved up after you leave. Boy, he's a really good speaker. I know I'm not that. And I'm all right with that because the Word of God is the power. In the ministry of the Word of God and the sacrament, that's where you'll be fed. And if I come off as confident at any level, it's because of the Word of God. I know if it goes forth, you will be fed. God will use the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, to change your life, to make you sanctified. And I believe that so strongly that we do our best to constantly put as much of the Word of God before you as possible. That's where the power is. That's the job of the priests in the Old Testament church. It's the job of the elders in the church today. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You know, in the Presbyterian church, we have one office of elder. All must be able to do teaching and preaching. But we have ruling elders and teaching elders, and the teaching elder aspect comes from this verse, where some are given specifically the duty of just concentrating constantly on studying and preaching and teaching. That's what I do. But I can guarantee you if there is ever an occasion that pastor nathan or i were not here there's no question in my mind that any one of the ruling elders could step into the pulpit and feed you the word of god they have to be able to because they're shepherds in god's church they have a very specific god-ordained role in the church it's very similar to the teaching ministry of the priests in the old testament and i think we can we have a direct parallel with these words to the priests of the old testament to us today as elders in his church let's look together for a moment at God's call to leadership. First of all, in verse 2, you get a hint, and it's from the negative, but you get a hint of what they're supposed to be doing as priests. If you will not listen, in the beginning of verse 2, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. So they're not doing this, but you can tell that what they're supposed to do very fundamentally is listen to the Lord. Now, they're to take to heart what they hear from the Lord. Now, in their time, there's this ongoing revelation that's happening, Malachi being the last book written. In our day, we have the completed word of God. So we are to go to what God says and listen for what he says. I don't mean to go like this. I mean study it and learn what he's saying and what he's communicating. We're to listen to God's word as leaders, as shepherds of the church. And then, very importantly, take it to heart. It's not just about knowing it and then saying it and impressing you all with the great theological terms that we can come out with or what the latest debate is. It's how has this made me a better father? How has this made me a more faithful person in the Lord? And theological precision is part of that. 
That's what fuels your faithfulness. So there's this drive for doctrinal purity and understanding, and as well as taking it to heart. This is what they were not doing, but we see it's clearly the call of the priest. But let's look more specifically, because in verse 4, he draws the connection to the Levitical priesthood as it began with Aaron and so forth. And you have this faithfulness that was at least for a time in Israel's life that the priest exuded. Starting at verse 4, we start to get an idea of what God's call to leadership is for us. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. And you probably remember the Old Testament In Deuteronomy in particular, he calls out a particular tribe of Israel. They're not given any land to occupy. They're given the task of laboring over the word and doctrine to give to the people. This is a Levitical priesthood. It's a covenant he made with them. You do this, and I will do this for you. I'll give you life and peace. And that doesn't mean a great life. doesn't mean a long life necessarily, but they'll live. And you know what? Someone could live 30 years and really live compared to someone who's 80 and never really lived. Do you follow? So I'll give you life, and I'll give you peace. Peace does not necessarily mean they won't have opposition. In fact, I guarantee you they will. But peace comes from God. Peace is something you gain from God in the worst of external circumstances. So if you go forth and preach as I tell you, administer the people, uh, the things that I give you to administer to them, tell them the truth, turn them from iniquity, and you will be given life. You'll really live, and you'll have peace. And brothers and sisters, I've experienced that peace, and I hope you have too. And that is, even though everyone around you is telling you that you're a radical or that you're, you're a religious freak, there's something you may have heard, but you know in your heart is what the Lord has said in his word, and you have peace. People are saying that you're wrong, but you have peace. That's what he's speaking of with regard to the priests of this day. The covenant with Levi, that I will give you life and peace, and I gave it them, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Not a covenant of being scared. I don't mean that. It's reverence. The priests reverenced and feared, revered God. And they, in their stance, reverent stance before God, that exuded reverence to the rest of the congregation. When they saw their leaders reverencing God, giving honor to him, recognizing him for who he is, they too then had that same reverence. Look at verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. True instruction almost is always equal to the law of God in the Old Testament. And sometimes versions will translate it just as that, the law of God. And that's a good way to translate it, is he spoke it, he taught it, he thought it, he meditated upon it, he spoke it, he taught it, he thought it, he meditated upon it. It's in his words. You may say, that's all that guy can talk about. That's right, because it's all that's in his mind. The Lord's moving it, and he thinks it's more important than anyone. Because he thinks that it's so important that it will affect everything you do in life. Even the most mundane things that you think are just kind of outside of God's purview. The priest is supposed to think, The leader of God's people, the shepherd of God's people, is supposed to always ask the question, what does God's word say to this? And then minister to the people. It's always in his mouth. And no wrong was found in his lips. It speaks to accuracy, doctrinal accuracy. Details matter. It's not just like, well, a bunch of people think a bunch of things. It doesn't matter what. No. It's accuracy that God is is most impressed with. Granted, no one's perfect. But as we endeavor to know the truth, God grants New insight. But when we just stop and say, oh, I just can't know this. I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to worry about it. We forget God's call to even the particulars about himself. And the priest, the one who's called to be over the church, the, the shepherd, has to be most concerned with these details because he knows that they are most important for the daily life of the people, even if they won't recognize it. Their view of God will affect how they live. And most importantly, practically speaking, what happens when bad things happen? Their view of God will come to the forefront when that pressure is on. And faithful 
faithfully expounding who God is will only help to serve the people of God in those times of blessing and of trial. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity in the second part of verse 6. What a beautiful testimony of the call of leadership. Walking in peace and uprightness before the Lord. Not ashamed, knowing he's a sinner, but he's forgiven, and that he's walking and he's striving towards his master's call. And he turned many from iniquity. What a beautiful thing. And notice turning people from iniquity is associated with the word, with having the word on his lips and his heart and his mind. Turning people from iniquity, what a beautiful thing for a shepherd to turn a sheep from harming themselves or harming their father's name. And they were able to do that because they were walking faithfully. They were turning people from iniquity. That's the call to leadership. Conduct was reflected by the law of God, which he taught, and then he was able to correct lovingly and caringly like a shepherd would with sheep, stopping them from doing something that would hurt themselves or their master. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Very careful what he says in light of who God is. He's not just talking about anyone. He's talking about God. So be very careful. Guard it even with respect to what he says about God. God should not be spoken of in a trite way ever. And the mouth of the priest, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. Verse 7, the second part of verse 7. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. You know, the clergy have such a low view today. People have such a low view. They won't go to their pastor about anything. Or only the things that they already know what the pastor is going to say. But anything really serious, they're just not going to ask him probably today. I don't know what that is in particular, but I think a low view, and rightfully so in some ways, of the clergy has promoted this. But shepherds are people you should go to. You should go to your elder with advice, and, and they should give you biblical counsel. That should be their first answer. What does the Word of God say to this? People should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Someone that he can go to, not because of who he is, certainly not because of who I am, but because of his attention to the word of God and knowledge of it. Particular applications just to think about for a moment, specifically to the leaders of the church. We are to be leaders who follow God's instruction, and we do care about the details. Even if people say that you're, you spend too much time on the theology, spend more time in the theology, spend more time in that doctrine, because if we really believe what we say, that people's view of God will affect their life, then we want to study it and know it better and teach it better. We are to be leaders who have a personal walk with the Lord. We take it to heart, as the text says. It's not just in our head, it's in our actions. Notice how Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor, the young elder, guard your doctrine well. Is that what he says? Guard your life and doctrine well. Doctrine and life. We are to live that before the people. That may mean being chief of repenters. It doesn't mean being perfect. It means repenting when we should repent. Calling sin, sin, and repenting of it personally. We are to honor God by our actions so as to influence others in the same way. We are to have accountability with each other. Uh, one of the great blessings of this church is that I promise you if I, if I utter even a partial heresy, is there such a thing as a partial heresy? Probably not. But if I uttered something wrong, I will get a few emails, probably within the day, if not from one of you, from one of our elders, for sure, because they are equally responsible for you, and it's not all right for me to get up here and say something that's not in accordance with the word of God. That is a mutual accountability we must have. It's bigger than me, bigger than any one of us. It's his shepherds that he's given. He's given a plurality of shepherds over us. Accountability in our lives and teaching. Why? Because we are able to then turn people from sin. And don't think of that in a negative term. Think in terms of you're heading towards danger and you're going to die. And someone pushes you out of the way. Do you get mad at them for pushing you? No, you thank them for stopping you. That we might turn people from iniquity. That is the call upon the shepherd's life. And recognize, brothers, that this is a call from God. This is not just a call 
that we make up, this is a call from God, as the laying on of hands that Timothy has spoken of. We are called by God. Our accountability is to him, not to popularity, not to the acclaim of men, but it's a call to God, from God. Let's look at failed leadership, though. We can't avoid this. As much as I'd like to just say amen and go home. Failed leadership, verses 2, 8, and 9, you will see. Look at verse 2, now from the perspective that it, it comes forth so loudly. If you will not listen, so they're not listening. If you will not take it to heart, they're not taking it to heart. To give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, and I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And we'll get to the curse aspect in a moment, but if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, if you just won't take this relationship with me personally yourself, that I'm going to have to do something to discipline you so as to guard my name, to turn you back, hopefully, but to guard my name. Failed leadership in verse 2, ignoring God's clear instruction. They wouldn't listen. It's not that you can't hear. It's that you will not listen. They were not giving God proper honor. I don't know exactly how that worked out, but we know one way. They were accepting lame offerings. They were saying it's okay to deface the future picture of Jesus, our Redeemer, by giving us lame offerings. We'll go ahead and take them from you, the priest was saying, even if it's stolen. That's a statement about what they thought of God. They did not revere him. They did not fear standing before him. Failed leadership starts with a lack of reverence for God. That's the beginning point. But it, it has developed further. Look at verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. So right away they start by having a lack of reverence for God and who he is. And what does that lead to? It turn, they've turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. The exact opposite of what we've just seen. They have not only, it's not that people weren't growing, they were actually causing them to stumble by their instruction. So what they were saying was erroneous to the point where it was hindering the people of God. It was causing them to stumble. Powerful. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 9, and so I make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality. So now we have that they're showing partiality in their instruction. And it's, it's hard to know exactly what is meant. It could be something as simple as, as they're teaching, they were applying some things to just some people, maybe who were less uh, wealthy or less powerful. That could be that kind of partiality. It could be that the cultural norms were such that they just wouldn't address sins that were there because they didn't want to become unpopular. Some way they were taking the word of God and they were not ministering it equitably. Instead, they were just using it as they wanted to use it, teaching on what they wanted to teach, lacking the whole counsel of God on the matters. The NIV does a good job of translating shows they show show partiality in matters of the law the law being the standard of god and they were using it in some way manipulating it in some way to serve themselves now i want to draw a couple applications from this failed leadership it's there and you could see plainly what is going on in the lives of these priests but there are two applications. There's a greater national one I want to make. Now, before I do that, understand, I know I'm preaching to the choir, so I'm not saying it just for the sake of us all feeling good about some, you know, we are on the right side of these wrong battles. It's not that. We all live in a world where we interact with people, especially people that are in the church or they say they're in the church. And that's what I want to address is that revival in a nation starts with the church's examination of itself and its own repentance. And so for that reason, we in the church of Jesus or those who claim to be in the church of Christ need to really examine ourselves in light of the scriptures. And so I don't say any of these things as though it's them and it's us. This is an in-house debate or discussion to some degree. At least I think it's in-house. In places that it's not, we need to clearly identify that. But there are two issues that really speak to this matter. People are supposed to be priests called by the same confessional standards that 
pastors in our own church, they say the same ordination vows. They're called reverend. And so you would think that in those areas, no matter what's popular in the culture, that those voices would speak to what the Word of God says. Isn't that the role of the priest in the Old Testament, the prophet in the Old Testament, the shepherd in the New Testament? What does the Word of God say? And the culture, then, will be healed by the faithful obedience of the church to those truths that transcend, regardless of what culture says. Two issues today that are, are paramount, and they're moral issues. They're not social political issues, no matter how much people want to pay in that way. They're moral issues that the church has the power to speak on and have transformation in its own midst, the issue of homosexual practice and the issue of abortion. Those two things are huge. Now, I could pick any, other, any number of sins. And let me be clear, I'm not picking out the sinner so much as Tony has enough problems of his own. And I've got sins, and they're sins. That's the point that I need to repent of. And I've got plenty of them. I've got to share them all with you, make you further depressed. But the point being is it's not about that. We understand there are forgiveness, but there's forgiveness when there's repentance, not just simply saying it's okay. In fact, that's far worse. And those two issues the Bible is painstakingly clear on. It's very difficult to do the kind of gymnastics you need to do exegetically to make it say anything other than homosexual practice is wrong, it's a sin, and abortion is wrong, it's a sin. I know that's not politically popular today, but that's the role of the church to say what the Word of God says even when it's painful against, against the culture. But what we have happening that I, I, I'm burdened by is the fact that people that have the same ordination vows, at least in words, are making these things not so, so much are they just not speaking on it, but they're now advocating it to the point where they're no longer turning people aside from iniquity. I would submit to you that they're actually causing people to stumble by their statements. Here, there are five denominations in the country that are the oldest denominations, the ones that did start out with a view of sola scriptura. That is, that scripture alone was the authority, and they derived uh, much of their teaching on this in the early days. But then as time went on, they disregarded the authority of scripture, and other things crept in, and scriptures is one of many things they refer to. And those denominations really involve most of the people that call themselves Protestant anyways in this country. Even though they're bleeding profusely, that is, they're declining, they still have the majority of people who call themselves Protestant. That is, the PCUSA, the United Methodist Church, the United Church of Christ, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and then, of course, the Episcopal Church, as you've heard in the news so much. Now, you would look and see what they say, and I'm not saying the rank-and-file member thinks these things, but here's an official statement from the United Church of Christ on the homosexual issue. Confronted by gift, uh, by gift confronted and gifted by these baptized persons, that is, people in the church that were living homosexual lifestyles, members of the United Church of Christ have been challenged to read the Bible again with new eyes and listen to the Holy Spirit with new ears. In other words, we know what it says, but let's listen to it again. Let's try reading it again. We have had to re-examine long-held assumptions, and he's right, long-held, 1,900 years long, as far as the New Testament, and before that in the Old. We, have held, we had to re-examine long-held assumptions about those few passages of Scripture that appear to speak about homosexuality in the light now of transforming interpretations from widely respected Bible scholars and teachers. And we have to begun, we've begun to recognize how our fears of those who are different and our society's deep entrenched bias against homosexual persons has often distorted and nearly silenced the Bible's liberating and inclusive voice. This is a minister in the United Church of Christ, one of the bigger mainline denominations. And almost all those other denominations have made similar statements. You can go online and find them all. It's explicit. That is causing people in the church to stumble. It's not just a matter of not saying anything about it. Or not, it's not neutral. It's causing them to justify actions. That is the height of failed leadership, and that's what it's happening. You would think that the issue of abortion would be a little more explicit. It's not. The PCUSA, the church, the, the denomination to which our denomination left in the 70s, 
has roundly, for years now, supported abortion rights. In fact, some churches have it on their bulletin board, uh, the pro-abortion group. And this is a church, calling itself a church. Uh, this is the denomination itself made an official statement in the 2002 General Assembly. The denomination supports access to legal abortion, but maintains that it should be the option of last resort. That is as powerful a statement as they make. The assembly adopted a list of conditions under which abortion could be acceptable after the fetus was capable of living outside the womb. Who determines that? I would submit to you that a two-year-old can't live outside the womb very long if it isn't for mom or dad. Are they not viable? At any rate, they say officially, the ending of a pregnancy after the point of fetal viability is a matter of grave moral concern to all of us and may, under, be, may be undertaken only under the rarest of circumstances and after prayerful pastoral care. Well, I can tell you what the pastor who wrote this would say. He would turn them to stumble. He would not stop them from iniquity. He would give them to stumble. This is unfaithful leadership. And we need to be aware of the fact that, that there will not be revival in this country until the church of Jesus Christ starts being the church of Jesus Christ and saying what the word of God says, even when it's not popular. What about our local church? Paul tells a young elder Timothy this. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the for the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which is given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on your, yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So to us, the elders of the church, and the people who hear the word, the messages that you hear and the teaching you receive, recognize what our call is, is that is to, in the face of our sin, bring what the word of God is. Be honest and open with you about our own sin and our own need for repentance, because I've got plenty of things I need to repent. But where it affects us personally, I, rather than those two big national issues, is we just have to call it what it is. What does it affect us? What do you think Redeemer's problem is? Do you think we're materialistic? I would submit we are. I don't mean necessarily us, uh, maybe you as an individual, so much as we live in a very materialistic society. Let's just call it that. Doesn't God say that's idolatry? Isn't that what the word of God says to us? Should we not repent of that? How about this kind of idolatry, a, a child-centered home? Well, that always, well, I'm just a good, no, you're worshiping your kid. Because you won't do anything unless your kid, it's okay with him or her or what their activities denote. Oh, I know that hurts. But isn't that applying what the word of God says, that Christ is the center of the home and the worship of him is what happens and then the family follows Christ's leadership, not what Johnny or Susie have to do by way of activities this week. This is an idolatry problem. And the word of God speaks to us today on this and we have to say it. We have to call it what it is. And the Lord in his grace has given you a pastor with little kids and you're going to get to watch me mess up a lot and walk with you in this. You have elders that all are in the similar, you know, in fluctuating state. No one's saying we're holier than anyone else, but we're saying the word of God says this, and we're not living like this. That's the call of the shepherds. Gossip. When's the last time you listened to someone say something you know is gossip and did not rebuke them? No, I didn't say you didn't say anything. That's not what you're, you're supposed to rebuke them. You're supposed to call them on their sin, not just, well, I didn't pass it along, and I, just, and I didn't say anything to them. No, then you just sinned too. Could you entertain gossip and gave them more fuel to go tell the next person instead of saying that what you're doing is sinning and it's vile against Christ. It's actually cosmic treason against the Lord. Oh, I know that would, you wouldn't get that person talking to you like that again, would you? We've got to do it. This is what the word of God says to us. That's the call to faithful leadership telling you, confronting, putting these things before you and us 
aligning our lives according to God's will, not according to what's popular, what feels good, what gives us a certain elevation in the status. Let's finally look briefly at God's discipline. There's a curse, and it uses the word curse, and I would say discipline is a word we can put here. That is uh, God doing something to change the actions of his people for his name's sake. And that's the first reason, for his name's sake. Look at verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. What is he talking about, his ble- the blessings of the priests? Well, I think this refers to Leviticus 9, verse 22, where Aaron lifted his hands and blessed the people. And there are several occasions where the priests blessed the people. That is, they pray a prayer over the people, and God was, was uh, giving them uh, no effect in these blessings. He was taking away their power, their ability to be a blessing to the people. And I, I'm, I'm sure you've caught that as the leadership goes, if they're being disciplined, the people suffer, don't they? They suffer as the, as the leaders are being disciplined. And so I will curse your blessing. I'll actually turn it on you. Look at verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. So there are an actual discipline in the generations. And here's a very graphic, and some of you are going to love explaining this to your children today. And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. What does this mean? Well, spreading dung here refers to the task of carrying out the sacrifices. This is what I mean. They would take the sacrifice, and they would then, after... uh, doing the sacrifice and, and, and applying the blood in the proper way, they would eat the sacrifice, and it would be food. And so they would cut the animal, uh, they would cut the animal, and they'd take the intestines and all the innards out uh, so that they can cook, butcher the animal and cook it up and eat it. Well, when they would do this, they would then take the intestines out as a whole, and they come out really nice. They come out if you don't puncture them. So they'd take them out, and they would burn them. It's part of something Exodus 29 lays out is what's to be done because it's unclean. And if you touched it, you'd become unclean, the priest. So what is being said here is that I will spread dung on your faces. It means as you're doing that task in front of the people now, I will make those intestines bust and it'll spit all over your face. That's what I'm telling you. So you will be unclean before the people. You will be discredited. Your power will be taken away in front of the people as I make those intestines blow up on you. Oh, I know it's graphic and it's meant to be. I will spread dung on your face as it relates to the offerings. And you shall be taken away with it. So when you get rid of this whole carcass now, the offering, because it's now all unclean, I'm going to throw you out with it for being unfaithful in this way. Why would God act such discipline? Look at verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. He does it to preserve his covenant. He, he discredits some so as to maintain his own credibility before the people. He takes out of service those who are unfaithful like that, so that he can maintain his own honor and dignity. And praise God that he still does that today. Those denominations I mentioned, I mean no harm if they would just come back to the truth, but they're bleeding at an irreparable, they're they're losing members year after year. And I just pray that God would close places that do not honor his word. And he will, in in the longer haul of things, he will. Makes us want to be faithful, doesn't it? Not out of fear, but out of reverence for what he's called us to do. So that my covenant with Levi may stand, that I'll still have credibility in the priestly line. Further, God will move to discredit the priests before the people. In verse 9, and so I will make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And I'm always dismayed when I read these surveys. I don't know who takes the surveys because they never call me and ask my opinion. Uh, but the public's image of the clergy, according to this book called Emerging Trends, it's in the mid 90s. 
uh, the public's image of the clergy is at an all-time low, with just a bare majority now rating them very high or high in honesty and ethical standards. Only 15% of people surveyed think that clergy can be considered high in honesty and ethical standards. One person in three, this is 33%, considers clergy ethics to be just average. So really, really the majority think, mm, you know, take or leave them. That's horrible. What kind of a witness is that for people who are called to the clergy? But brothers and sisters, that's okay if that's God's judgment until he raises a faithful generation. If that's what we're going to do, if that's the way we're going to conduct ourselves, that's what God's going to do to preserve his name is he'll bring our credibility to such a level until he decides to raise up for himself a generation that will be true to his word because his name is not going to be, is not going to be thwarted for long. I want to close with a prayer that has not been written by me. It's a written prayer that I have come across that I've prayed several times just for the church in America, just the chur- our church and for the church of Jesus Christ, that God would raise that generation of faithfulness to his word. And you know what's happened in our history before, where people be- became faithful to preaching the word just the way the word was, applying it to their lives, and God saw fit to save many people. It's happened in our, in our country before. May it happen again and then spread through the world. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord God, give us men ribbed with steel of your Holy Spirit, men who will not flinch when the battle's fiercest, men who will not acquiesce or compromise or fade when the enemy rages. God, give us men who can't be bought, bartered, or badgered by the enemy. Lord, give us men who will pay the price, make the sacrifice, stand the ground, and hold the torch high. Lord, give us men obsessed with your principles, principles true to your word, men stripped of self-seeking and yearning for security, men who will pay any price for freedom and go any length for truth. God, give us men delivered from mediocrity, men with vision high, pride low, faith wide, love deep and patience long. Lord, give us men who will dare to march to the drumbeat of a distant drummer, men who will not surrender principles of truth in order to accommodate their peers. Lord God, give us men more interested in scars than in medals, more committed to conviction than convenience, men who will give their life for the eternal rather than indulging their lives for the moment in time. Lord God, give us men who are fearless in the face of danger, calm in the midst of pressure, bold in the midst of opposition. Lord God, give us men who will pray earnestly, work long, preach clearly, and wait patiently. Give us men whose walk is by faith, behavior is by principle, whose dreams are in heaven, and whose book is the Bible. Lord God, give us men who are equal to the task. Those, O Lord, are the men the church needs today. Do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. There have been faithful ones that have come before us, and we thank the Lord for this. Let's Sing in our hymn of response number 358 for all the saints.